0: Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.
1: Toyota Brookhaven has been voted best new car dealership in Southwest Mississippi four years in a row. Come see the difference. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at Toyota Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. In a Mississippi minute. That's Everybody, we are back in a Mississippi minute. When I say back, I mean part two of a really glorious conversation with a wonderful man, uh, incredible history in the music business. And I could talk to him forever. So I'm I know I don't have forever, or nor nor does he, but we do have two days. So I want to welcome back Norbert Putnam by way of uh, Florence, Alabama, in his studio. Hey, Norbert, welcome back.
2: Oh, it's great to be back. My
1: pleasure. It's good, it's good. Well, uh, I know we are uh, on day two, and I wanted to talk to you, uh, jump right in, and my first um, introduction to Dave Loggins was at the Sunset Grill in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm pretty sure David Briggs was there that night, because I think I met David as well. I'd first gotten to Nashville in 1991. Early, early 91. Uh, and he walks up to me and and I'm introduced and he goes, so are you any good? And I said, well, I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, he goes, don't ever say that you you say you're the best. And he really got on to me. I mean, and like he was yeah. trying to, you know, like a coach, which I was used to dealing with and growing up. Uh, but I still, to this day, rely on my <laughs> rely on the crowds to tell me if I'm any good because I make a lot of mistakes here and there, and I'm never perfect. And I and I and I pride myself on getting better, but I still can't say it. <laughs> so uh, I'm confident in myself and love to write songs yeah. and know that I can do it. But as far as that kind of, I felt like there was a touch of. He didn't want me to be arrogant. He wanted me to be confident. But with me, I feel like it would it would. Be more arrogant. So you had a lot of time with Dave Loggins. Uh, yeah. Take me back to yeah. your introduction and the music you guys made together.
2: David Briggs and I had a publishing company called Danor Music for David and Norbert, right? Right. And the, David and I sort of had a deal. I'd look after the studios and the technical part of the studios, and he would work with Troy Seals in the publishing. He'd do the demo. So we had two. So we didn't step on each other's toes as it happened, and, and everything was going great for a few years. And David came in my office one morning, and he said, "Are you working next week?" I said, "No, I start a record week after next." Okay, there's this kid named Dave Loggins, and Jerry Crutchfield on
1: you. I love Jerry.
2: You want to come and play bass on his record? And I, I said, "Well." Is he any good? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Isn't that funny? That's ironic. <laughs>
2: and, 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 and Briggs said, oh, it's great. He said, y- you know, he came over here, and uh, he wanted us to sign him. I thought, well, we don't have time to mess with him. You're busy. I'm busy. So I sent him down the street. Well, okay. So the next week, I go over to Jack Clement Studios, and I forgot who band it was, but uh, it was a top-notch Nashville band. Loggins gets his guitar out, and he plays and he sings the first song. I'm looking at David Briggs like I'm going to kill David Briggs. <laughs> this guy is obviously one of the greatest writers to come down the pike. The pike, and David is sitting down the street. Okay. <laughs> 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 and so, and so, well, anyway, uh, the first song we did was called "Pieces of April." Now, uh, that was later covered by Three Dog Night, wow. and Loggins' career took off really quickly. And I was still trying to think of a way to kill David Bridg. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but uh, a year or two goes by, and uh, we made another Loggins record, and Jerry Crutchfield produces. And uh, this would this would have been when we did "Please Come to Boston," I guess.
1: Please come to Boston for the springtime. It was a morning
2: session, and everybody was sort of hung over from a party tonight. In. Before. And uh, we came over to Columbia Studios. I think it was 10 in the morning. Dave came in and played the song down and ran to the bathroom to throw up or something. He wasn't feeling well. And young Steve Gibson was there, and he picked up the guitar part. But to make a long story short, Jerry Crutchfield, seeing that things are not going well, says, I'm going to my office and make a few phone calls. <laughs> and, and he talks, he talks like Dave, this.
1: I'm going to my office and making a few phone calls, okay? real Exactly. Right?
2: And, so, and so Dave comes back. And Kerrigan and I are talking about putting two bars of double time on on, on some little hook in there, okay? And uh, we sort of have the thing worked out, and uh, and Briggs has got a part, Steve Gibson has got a part, and I think uh, Billy Sanford played that solo on there. But anyway, uh, um, uh, Crutchfield comes back in, and he goes, well, uh, have you guys worked it out? We said, we think so. He said, well, let's make it. And they roll tape, Okay. (laughs) And, and uh, we played it back. Crutchfield goes, I think that's really good. Let's try to get three more songs. I think it was done in one take. That's what I'm saying.
1: Right, you. right. I love it. I love it.
2: And and so Loggins later put his vocal on, and uh, Glenn Spring came in and wrote those beautiful strings, and Glenn did all the backing vocals. With, I think the Holiday Sisters were on that, and Jeannie Green, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. record came out, and you know, it, it ended up, is one of the top five Grammy nominees in the pop category.
1: Are we talking the, they, the whole record? Are we talking Please Come to Boston?
2: Please Come to Boston finishes in New York. Dave Wiggins flies to New York. He's sitting at a table. He doesn't win, okay? Right. But the other people at the table were Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, Paul Simon.
1: <laughs> he had some competition. Is that what you're saying?
2: Oh, and everyone at the table except yeah. Dave was an icon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and so, well, obviously, it was one of the greatest records i ever worked on. I, oh, I still it's a wonderful record. Okay. And uh, and Dave came back, and I saw him. He, he, I said, so how did it go? He said, well, I just felt like I shouldn't be there. Because I'm sitting there with all these icons. Hmm. I've only got one song. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And, and, and he, he sort of got slipped out by it. He went back to the mountains of Knoxville for a while. And I didn't see him for a year. and uh, But uh, he did another couple of records, and he would always call me to play bass. And um, I think the, the record label stopped promoting him because they couldn't find him.
1: They couldn't
2: find <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know how that is,
1: right? <laughs> no, no, there's, uh, there's plenty of artists you can't find. I, I actually am friends with a few you can't find. And uh, it sort of does sort of stifle the old career. (laughs) You know, I have such great memories of Crutchfield. So Jerry Crutchfield, for our listeners, is a great producer, wonderful guy. He talks really hoarse like this. And I used to play a lot of golf with Jerry when I first came to town. I'm talking years worth. Finally, after a few years, he goes, Steve, I didn't know you were an artist and I went well you never you never asked and we were like golf buddies you know <laughs> so but I love Jerry man for anybody that doesn't know Jerry Crutchville another here this is an example I think of you know we all get have our clicks of people that we spend time with and that we that we make music with because it's got to be like a deep relationship and you got to get along you gotta love each other and yeah. you had this team of people Around you that really, really did crazy, amazing stuff, and you and and you did it together. And I just love hearing about your uh, your relationships that you built and David built, and how you guys were buddies and grew up together in Muscle Shoals and and made history there and made your way to Nashville. I just think that it's just and how you remain great friends and did business together. I just think no, that I that's a credit. To
2: kill David Brick. Well, yeah, what of course you do. He's of gonna, course. He's going to be found dead somewhere, and they're going to come <laughs> to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, no, David and I are like brothers. We well, know yeah. brothers fight. And, and so we have our ups and downs. But you know what? I'm, I'm always glad to see the guy.
1: <laughs> oh, of course. Well, he's a joy. Both of you guys have, uh, well, I mean, if your day is bad and you run into either one of you, you make everybody feel great. And I love that. And I'm sure it was that way in the studio. And obviously y'all both of your work ethic. So, so people always ask, Oh, somebody just sort of made it by chance. People that, that I've worked the closest with that have had the most success, have had the most success because they work the hardest plenty of people with talent right there's tons of people with talent and they come to me and i can see immediately how hard they're going to work you know give it give it a week or two you know and you know how much it means to them and you're either like all in or you're not and that's the best way that i can give advice to people that want to go oh i'm really good there's i've heard some great singers since i've come down here you know, songwriting, you got to really impress me because I like, just like you, we've been around so many great ones that have, you know, made all this history that, man, you got to bring a great song just to make me, like, go, whoa. But as far as vocals and voices, I've heard so many unique, wonderful voices since I've been back. And still, I just don't see the work ethic in 90, 99% of them. And I just think it's that 1% that just is the deal maker, you know?
2: Well, you know, when I went to Nashville, I was working with Chet Atkins. Not immediately, because Chet watched us for a year or so. But uh, Grady Martin, I think. I think it was Grady said to me. Do you know Chet takes guitar lessons every week? And I thought, he's the greatest guitar player in the world. Why does he take lessons? Well, he was studying classic, classical guitar. He wanted to play Sigrovian music, you see. Mm-hmm. And, and I went out and hired a, a teacher to teach me Arco bass. I may have mentioned that in our earlier part of the interview. You know, if you really wanna be great, you can't ever relax. You keep trying to get better. Right. And better and better. Mm-hmm. And uh and you do. So so you never rest on your laurels, as they say. You
1: know. That's unbelievable. Well we're talking to the great Norbert Putnam. We're gonna be right back.
0: Easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Nibbling on sponge cake watching the sun bake all of those tourists covered with oil talking to norbert putnam we're in session two uh day two of a mississippi minute and that's redefining the show and i love it because norbert has lived uh so many great uh historical music moments Uh, it's amazing to me and just love having on the show now As we're embarking in day two here, Norbert, uh, we got to talk, we got to talk Jimmy Buffett. We got to know how you you guys meet. I mean, think about another Mississippi artist. Here you are working with another Mississippi artist. And and this guy, so intelligent uh, and had his own vision for things and his own style of music. And obviously, the whole island thing and the party that goes on now. When Jimmy Buffett puts on a concert, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's like, i'm trying to explain the circus it's a modern day circus It's brilliant you know uh he's got the margarita machines now i mean he's he's in the whole merchandising thing you know take taking t-shirts to a new level he's got the he's got the the margarita making a machine put a bunch of ice in it and call it a day so he's uh making money all over the map but can we talk about beginning of oh, the oh yeah, head? i would
2: love to tell you how that how that happened okay i've been down to miami I was doing a lot of work in Miami because my the one studio I have in Nashville is Quad, and we didn't have a second room, and and after all the hits, it was, it was cut there. You know, Dobie Gray does Drift Away There. That was the song of the year. Neil Young, keep, he does Keep Me Searching for a Heart of Gold, biggest record he ever had, you know, mm. and, and and I can't get him on. So I did a Pousset Dart band down in um, the Criteria Studios and loved it. I come back, and this is 1977, and I've already, I'm having a lot of success with Vogelberg now and a lot of other people. And uh, I get a phone call from uh, Buffett's manager, Don Wright. And he said, Norbert, he said, you know, Jimmy just had a, what we call a radio record. It's called Come Monday. It uh, sold about 120,000 singles and made it in the top 20, but didn't go any higher. And he said, we think he's primed for a top 10 record, but he wants to record with his road band and uh, Don, uh, Don Gant says he will not work with a road band. It's got to be professional music. Right. <laughs> and, and he said, would you take a meeting with Buffett? And so Buffett comes. I said, well, I'm having <laughs> dinner at Julius tonight. Tell him to come over after dinner. Buffett came over at 9 o'clock. We were finishing. We sat in the bar. And I said, so tell me what you're thinking. He said, Norbert, my band is more like the Rolling Stones than some Nashville studio band. And I want that energy on my records. And Gant refuses to do it. So we're sitting there talking after dinner, and he said, would you come and see my band? I said, are you playing locally? Yeah, next week we're going to be out at Hermitage Landing. Great, I'm there. I go out there the next week. And they were a jump-up-and-down rock band playing Buffett's, what well, is it's basically folk ballads, okay? And I went backstage and I said, we have to talk because I think I've got some ideas. And two days later, I go over to Don's office and Jimmy Buffett gets his guitar out and plays me a whole slew of songs about the ocean. Everything is about sailing and drinking and carousing. And, 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 and all I'm hearing is, is, is ocean, ocean breakers across the bow of the boat, as he's telling me all this. And, and he finishes, he said, what do you think? <laughs> I said, I want to take you to Miami. I want to record you at Criteria Studio." Well, Norman, you've got the greatest studio in the world. Why would you want to do that? Because
1: you wanted a trip. You wanted to go to Miami. No, I'm kidding. I'm
2: <laughs> no, I had I been recording Fogelberg out in the mountains of Colorado at a studio was 10 miles from his house. He was better there than he was when I brought him into Nashville, my I get big it. city studio. I get it. And I said, I said, Buffett, I think if we can go down there, I'll take your band and I'll rent a big house. we put everybody in a big house. And uh, I rented a mansion on the bay. And, and they, you can all live together, and you can breathe salt air every day. And believe me, it's going to influence the music. And he said, "Well, what are you thinking about the music?" I said, "I know this sounds cliche, but I would love to introduce a little steel drums from Trinidad, maybe wooden marimbas, maybe a little <laughs> percussion that would give it a little bit of an island feel." And Jimmy starts frying. <laughs> Norbert, that's the most cliche thing. It sounds like. An episode of the South Sea this James Midgner he said I said and you know what I said I said I said I know it sounds crazy but if we could get something in there and I lied to him I said don't worry I'll think of something better than that well he got up and left and I didn't think I'd ever see him again yeah. <laughs> and, and he called me three days later he said you know I've been sort of mulling this idea around of uh, of uh, Caribbean sounds and uh, yeah he said I've started a song. I said, what's it called? Changes in attitudes, changes in latitudes. We're leaving Nashville, and we're going to the ocean. I said, you got it, brother. Let's go. And then he announced to me, he said, I just got my first check, and I bought a used sailboat. I'm going to bring it over to Coconut Grove. Oh, I said, then we'll work from 11 to 5 every day. We'll get the cassette. And we'll go down, crank the diesel motor out, and check the music on a boat. I like it, he said. And so Criteria Studios became a great idea. And the ocean, with the, with the sound of the ocean against the hull, was the other measuring stick we used. Absolutely. Oh, we're there. Oh, we're there. we got all the songs. And at the end of the first week, we're going in the second week, I see him at breakfast, and we work every day from 11 to 5. This gives the band a chance at night to have a night like the it's another version
1: of 9 to 5, 11 to 5. I like that. <laughs> yeah,
2: 11 to 5. We're getting six solid hours. We were getting two tracks every day. The band was playing good. He had rehearsing. One day at breakfast, he says, uh, I started a new song. I said, really? What's it called? He said, well, let me just tell you, sort of uh, autobiographical. He said, it's about a night and a day. In Key West, you know, I've been hanging out down there, and I, I played a bar, and I got drunk, and coming home, I stepped out of my flip flop and I just kept going. I stepped on a beer can, and, and it's about my next morning. I'm up and I'm hungover and I'm trying to make a margarita. I got some shrimp boiling and <laughs> I can't find the salt. And I, I said, "I said Jimmy, I kind of like that." And he said, "Yeah, I think I'll call it Margaritaville. <laughs> I didn't like the title, okay, because Motown Studio is called Hitsville. My friend Mancini just written a wonderful ballad for breakfast at Tiffany's, Dreamsville, and now we've got a Margaritaville. Read-a-ville.
1: yeah, you're living in some so <laughs>
2: I, didn't, I didn't think about it. So we're, we're gone, we're working, everything's going smoothly, we got two days to go, and Jimmy comes in around 10.30 to the studio. I got that song. I said, what song? Margaritaville. Listen to this. And he went over to where the acoustic guitar player sat. And I, I can still see him putting his legal pad up there with scratched out... Lines here and there. Right. And he picks up the guitar and he starts the strum. It's an eighth note strum rather than the finger picking thing he normally did. I like that. And he starts. And when he finished it, we all knew this is one of the best crafted songs ever written.
1: Another and, and you know, example of living it. I mean, that's what songwriters do. I mean, you've got to have inspiration to be able to yeah, tell it listen. so honestly, you know?
2: But you know, the most important aspect in every song. And you really can't live without it. At some point in that song, you have to have conflict. You know, It can't just be, it's a beautiful day, and I'm here on the beach with you, and we're so in love. I'm with you. And so he, he starts out nibbling on sponge cake, watching the sun bake, all those tourists covered in oil. Great, we can see that, can't we? They're really? poorly dressed tourists. <laughs> okay, right. With white socks and tennis shoes. And, 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 and he's on his front porch wing, and you uh, can smell those shrimps and uh and he gets to the course, and i'm waiting to see if we've got any real conflict right like <laughs> and he goes i'm wasting away down here in margaritaville which is his name for key west searching for my lost chase of the salt." and here it comes some people claim there's a woman to blame but i know it's my own damn
1: fault i mean which is boom
2: well now we got we've got we've got the confession and then we have humility, the yep. accept the blame. We have to give him a hug.
1: <laughs> right. No, you have to give <laughs> it
2: I I sat there and tracked here Studio B and watched dollar signs float in the air. <laughs> yeah, you did.
1: You knew you were coming back to Miami. Well, you're in a Mississippi minute. I'm Steve Azar. we were with the great Norbert Putnam. We're gonna be right back. But I know, it's my own. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Steve Azar. On Facebook.com, Steve Azar Live, and listen to all my music. Steve Azar and Steve Azar and the King's Men, wherever you download or stream. It's
2: In
0: Super Talk Mississippi, number one in the Magnolia State for news, weather, sports, and talk that matters to you. Don't you forget it. Super Talk Mississippi, the Super Talk app, and supertalk.fm. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: When Moses walked the children out of Egypt, said, now, don't you worry.
1: Hey, everybody, we are back inside of Mississippi Minute, day two. This is awesome. Day two with great Norbert Putnam, a music icon in my book and so many others. And he's got a brand new book called Music Lessons that you gotta get. You can go to norbertputnam.com, he'll sign it and send it to you. Or you can go to Amazon or where you know, usual outlets and, uh, and find it. But it's an incredible book, it's an amazing journey of a man. Uh, who who just was around it, made it, uh, a lot of legendary stuff here. He was around the best and was one of the best as well and still is because I think you're better now, Norbert, than you ever were. Uh, so you're back. Uh, you Let's go back all the way to the days of Dan Fogelberg. The you know, first time I heard Dan Fogelberg, it's almost like, how do you produce a guy like Dan Fogelberg when you really don't need anything but a guitar and a voice? <laughs>
2: That's correct. Well, you do very little, don't you?
1: Mm. I love it. You're eating, and, you go eat ice cream and come back, right? Like some of my other producers. Yeah,
2: well, well, you know, uh, Clive Davis flew me up to New York after I did the Bayat single. And uh, he pitched me Eric Anderson, and we did a record the next year called Blue Ripper, mm-hmm. which Rolling Stone magazine pitches one of the 10 best albums of the year. Eric, you know, was a great poet, like Dylan.
1: Yeah, he's and, fantastic.
2: Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, Clive says, I have these other kids in Peoria. And Fogelberg, Norbert, he can play, he can sing, and he can write for the best of them. And I brought the tape home and listened to it and found Clive to be correct. And I called him up, and I said, I want to do it. And he said, well, it's going to be between you and Jim Messina. You know, Messina, Loggins and Messina, you remember the group? Of course. And Messina was a great player and a great producer. I just
1: met Kenny not too long ago, and he invited us to a show in Hot Springs. He was wonderful.
2: What a great singer, Kenny Long. Yeah, was, man. Know? Still, great. I think he and Dave are distantly related, too. So, but anyway, uh, uh, so I, I called up Clive after listening to the tape and said, I want to do this. And he said, Well, it's between you and, and, and Messina. And about a week later, Dan came down to the studio with Irving off He's a young manager. They both hmm. went to school together, Champaign, I think. Champaign, Illinois.
1: University of Illinois.
2: And, uh, yeah. <clears throat> And my secretaries had just grabbed me and thrown me in the shower upstairs, and I was soaking wet. <laughs> uh, it was National Secretaries Week, and I'd forgotten to take them out for lunch, and it was so funny. Yeah. And these girls were tough, but I couldn't fire them because they ran the business. Yeah, they, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I, mean, I, needed, I needed all three of them <laughs> to make Quad go and to get the billing. <laughs> and, 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 of course, they were right. You know, they said, Norbert, the, you jerk. And they, they threw him in the shower, turned the water on. They went running down the steps at Dan, and Irving were coming up the steps. <laughs> and, of course, they were cursing me and shouting all, all sorts of uh, inflammatory remarks. Right. Dan later said, that's when he knew he wanted to work with me. He said, that scene there with those girls at Quad." Also, I, I forgot he was in the main room. We had a major act in the main room. They so went out and he saw Messina, but he chose me. That and he did incredible. Home Free, uh, which was that first record, which you may remember it opens with To two in the Morning, a yeah. piano piece, and uh, with strings. With Fogelberg, I found out he had a lot of respect for classical music. Well, so did I. Right, And, and we, liked, we liked Chopin, and we liked Foray, another French composer. He wrote some amazing stuff. It's Bavon one of the greatest pieces of music. But so Dan and I would talk about all aspects of music from classical to Broadway to pop to big band. His father was a saxophonist, Les Brown's band of renown, you know. And he had all of of his great DNA. But when we started to do the record, he played me to the morning. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I think we just do it with your piano and strings. Yeah, I love that. He came in, he came in the next day and he goes, Norbert, there's a chord that I think the strings could play as, because fade in, and then my piano comes up underneath the chord. Right. And, and I said, what is the chord? He says, it's one of the opening chords from Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. And we got the record out, and found it, and <laughs> swiped it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, Glenn, and Glenn Spring, this great orchestrator arranger. Who comes on board and he stays with Dan his whole career and writes the most beautiful orchestral parts to Dan Fogelberg. That sort of became the team. It was Dan, it was me, and it was Glenn Spring. All
1: right, let's 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 talk about this. This is this is something that I love about you that that you had to have been noticing at the time, or maybe you were in the middle of it all and you weren't. But looking back, hindsight, you got to know. So when you write when, when we write songs, I feel like every song is like a child and that they mm-hmm. all need certain instruments in their life to help. Like one of them's an athlete, one of them's a filmmaker, one of them's a chef, one of them's whatever, you know, and yeah. accompanying, accompanying them, it's a tough word for a Mississippi boy, I, especially when I've gotten rid of all my G's and everything's got a slash on it. Uh, you know, With with along with them, to me, is the soundtrack of their life and that soundtrack, uh, it, it, you've got to put the right instruments that belong to them. So you go from Buffett getting to my point here you go from jimmy buffett and with and thinking of the the island themes and the percussion and all that and then you go to dan Fogelberg. you're you're paying attention to the songs the artist the man the woman the act really well back in this time and i love that that you were able to not make okay there's producers that make records that sound like them on everybody they produce. That's my point. Exactly. exactly. Your artists are truly unique in that stature. And so that's my point. I love how you were able to do that. And like I always say, ride shotgun and also not have the ego to get in the way with my way is it. I love that about you. And I wish, man, I wish we'd been, I wish I'd have been born a little sooner and gotten better a lot quicker. (laughs) So I could have had you in my life, but um, even working with David Briggs on this last record, there's just something so pleasant about it and easy. It just comes from all your years of experience, but also uplifting and, and builds confidence and creates a, an atmosphere of total joy. And when you have that in the studio, man, you got a shot. You know, I just love that about you, and I, I'm, I'm glad that I've gotten to spend this time with you. We are with Norbert Putnam, and I'm telling you, this is one heck of a Mississippi minute. Uh, Ford slash Alabama over there on the other side. Uh, Norbert actually does wish he was from Mississippi, right? Nor- is my, am I crossing the line right now, Nor? literally? No, I,
2: a part of me <laughs> will always be in Mississippi because my wife is from Grenada. That's true. And we lived there for 10 years, okay? Yeah. And I uh, have so many friends there. Uh, Fred Carl, who had Viking range, right. design, becomes a really dear friend. George Bryan down there at uh, Old Waverly. I've already but interviewed
1: what? George. George and I had a great what? interview. He was a wonderful man. I really got to know him. I love him. I mean, what a yeah. great guy. Uh, great. We had a great day of interviews and uh, just what he's done. He came back home as well. That's another example of mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. all the way back home.
2: But I, I, You know, you mentioned that, uh, that I always tried to take a different approach with my artists, if I could, if I was smart enough. I wanted to make the backing track identifiable with the artist, okay? And it worked with Vogelberg. Dan was beautiful strings with his guitar and piano, right? Mm-hmm. And hmm And, uh, but, but it all began with Sam Phillips who grew up in my hometown. Old Sam, his motto was, if you're not doing anything different, you're not really doing anything. Hmm. And what Sam was always looking for was to do a different artist a different way, and he did it with, with Elvis and with Carl Perkins. You know? So I have to credit Sam Phillips with being smart enough to not just make a record like everyone else he's making. Right. And when I was working, I never listened to the top ten. Okay? I, love I that. realized that yeah. if I did that, I might try to make a record, and a couple of times I did. And, and the records were unsuccessful. Hmm. But if I could invent a new sound between, behind tw- Jimmy Buffett and Dan Fogelberg, and I could sell it, they can write that song, and I can do that production for 40 years. I love that. Like, El- Elton John is a great example of inventing a style of music and never changing, and he's still selling records. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, he didn't go to the <laughs> disco era like Rod Stewart maybe did or, or you know, Uh, You know, there were plenty of bands that sort of just followed the times to make timeless records. I don't think you can even think about the times you have to you have to live in the moment and be and and be honest. It's just being honest. And if you do that, then you obviously run the risk of nobody ever hearing it or everybody ever hearing it. You know, (laughs) or everybody. I have quite
2: a few records very few people have ever heard
1: and they're probably okay. incredible right some of your favorite records you probably ever made right
2: oh yeah I, I, I did a killer album with John Hyatt Love I had John. a great single uh, with Elvis Costello back there in 83 or 84 and I couldn't get the record label to promote the record hmm. I did Mickey Newbeer and we did a, an album called After All These Years and the and the president who had, who had signed me and Mickey to do it he gets fired a month before the record comes out. The new president called me and said, now, you, you know I'm not going to promote anything by the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, so you're telling me that the record I did with Mickey said, well, I'm not promoting it because I'm only going to promote the act." eye So oh, welcome yeah. to the music system. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the band, that happened a lot. Okay, we're going to be right back. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old.
0: But his blood runs through my instrument, and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. The Super Talk app.
1: Pop it in. Pop it in. And turn it on.
0: Listen to your favorite shows anytime you darn well please. The Super Talk app. It's free. Download the Super Talk app now. 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 Roll on street,
1: Mississippi,
0: deep and wide. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: We're talking to Norbert Putnam. You are inside of Mississippi Minute. Uh, day two, late in day two. That's how I'm feeling. It is wonderful to have you on the show. Norbert, the Delta Music Institute. And where did it all come from that you guys would think, let's do this? And and obviously in the land of uh, the Delta Blues, I just love it. But where did it all come from? And, and what was the effort in getting it done?
2: Well, the effort was tremendous. Uh, but the reason... Well, it started with Fred Carl. I become friends with Fred, okay, and I'm always going over when he's rebuilding Greenwood, you know. Oh yeah. Because he had so much success uh, with Viking, and that was a wonderful thing to see. He revitalizes that wonderful old hotel. He puts in a Viking cooking school, mm-hmm. and this guy's a visionary. And he called me one day and said, Norbert, I think he went to school for a year or two at Delta State before he went on to Mississippi State, and I believe his degree is in architecture. I could be wrong about that. But he called me, he said, Norbert, I'm giving some money to Delta State so that the music department can have a little studio to teach kids how to engineer and make pop records. And he said, would, would you come and design it? Because I had had some of Nashville's most successful studios. Right. Well, I drove over there and we went in the Whitfield gym, right? Mm-hmm. And John Thornell was the president at that time. Who, my dear friend, he's living in Florence now. Well, we go upstairs to the office space that's, that's mounted on the end of the gymnasium. Okay. And as we went up the steps, I can look down and see this hundred square foot hardwood floor. Would pull out bleachers, right? Did
1: <laughs> like you see all head, the shots right? I made and missed there while you were? Did you notice no.
2: <laughs> the scene of the crime? <laughs> oh, the gold, the gold, the goals were still up there, the basketballs <laughs> there. But so I go into the office, say, Oh, this is a piece of cake, Fred. I'll put a wall here, and we can have twenty kids out here, and uh, and we walk back out in the hall, and I said to John Thornell, I said, "So you have the nine thousand seater now for basketball." What are you using this space for? And he said, uh, Well, if it rains, the cheerleaders work out here. And I think we have yoga twice a week. (laughs) Oh, I said, Why don't you give me the whole thing? And he looked perplexed and so did Fred. And and Fred said, Well, what are you thinking? I said, I could cut a corridor down the middle of the room. And that would leave me by a space of 50 by 100 feet. I spoke to them about Abbey Road number one, the, the classical room in London that I'd worked there many times. I did Newberry over there with a 55-piece orchestra, and and it had three seconds of natural reverb. Well, so did the basketball court. So I said, "I'll, I'll build a symphonic room here for the music department. They can record the choir here, woodwind quartets, brass ensembles, and you can do it with a couple of mics. It'll sound like Abbey Road. And across the way, across the hall, I'll build a generic pop rock room with a couple of ISO booths, But I'll make both control rooms big enough to put 20 kids in. I love it. So I went home, drew it up, went back. Fred slipped out. Norbert, this is going to be the most amazing thing. John Thornell said, will you help us raise the money? (laughs) And and we finally get it done, you know. And then I went down and and visited the governor at a cocktail party. He gave us a million dollars. George Bryant came up, and he contributed heavily. I know he wouldn't want me to say how much he gave.
1: Yo, no, I, was, I've heard it was amazing. It was
2: substantial. Yeah. Okay. So, so we had George, we had Fred Carl, and we were off to a great start. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I constructed a little studio, and we couldn't find anyone to teach, and they asked me if I would do it. And I said I'd love to, but uh, I dropped out after my freshman year of college. <laughs> <laughs> and the dean said, well, he said, uh, NASM is the Accreditation society, and I believe they have a caveat in, in their bylaws that would allow you to teach.
1: Yeah, because you got because you 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 lived it. <laughs> well,
2: call your Parker with the deed, and he said uh, he said I'll just put together a, a history of, of of your involvement in the youth industry. and he worked on this. Okay, and he sent it to NASA. Out. They wrote back and said, well. He's overqualified, but hired.
1: (laughs) I love it. Yeah, well, yeah, again. And
2: then the music department went totally berserk. How dare anyone hire this guy who doesn't have a degree in music? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we ended up having to start our own. We had had to leave the music department. They didn't want the DMI. Right. So we created our own division. Music schools, for the most part, are still hung up on classical music and big band music. Well, you realize most music departments at small universities exist only so they can have a marching band for the football team? You know, when I was recording a lot in England with Gavin Wright and his young string players mm-hmm. who did those early Elton John records, they all came out of the Royal academy, and they played pop music with great energy. And I said to Gavin one day, how is it that your English school can teach classical and you guys can come out and earn a great living playing pop records. He said, well, Norbert, We studied Bach, Beethoven, Stravinsky, and George Martin, who wrote all the string parts for the Beatles. Mm-hmm. He said it's important for musicians to be able to make a living. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and, and so I, I jumped into the fray down there and it was it was great
1: fun. Well, you have been inside a very long Mississippi Minute that turned out to be 120 of them, which is exciting. <laughs> and it could only happen with me running my mouth, Steve Azar, and the great Norbert Putnam. Norbert, I can't thank you enough for being on In a Mississippi Minute. It was my pleasure, pal. Okay, brother, I'll see you soon. Let's go make some music sometime. You're on. You got it. All right, today. <laughs> I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time.
0: A Super Talk Mississippi <laughs> Media Production.